What we're trying to do in this series is help you see uh, your relationship with your spouse the way God sees it. There are a lot of things that can be said about marriage. There are a lot of books that can be read, some of which are very helpful. But ultimately, we have to go back, back to Scripture to see the original plan. When Paul says that marriage is a mystery, he means it's something that can only be understood by revelation. Our shots in the dark uh, are not very good, not very helpful. But what Paul and the apostles and the prophets have, have to say about, about our homes, uh, there's help. They give us help. Now, will you turn with me to the book of Malachi, which is uh, probably an unexpected uh, book in which to find some teaching on marriage. We go from the first book in the, uh, in the Old Testament to the last, the book of Malachi, chapter 2. Malachi 2. A number of years ago, I was having coffee with a friend of mine who was telling me about a new relationship that he was developing. He described the uh, young lady that he hoped to marry. He described her as a wonderful person, someone that he had come to love deeply and... Uh, <laughs> After listening for a while, I said, uh, uh, well, but uh, w- you're married. What about your wife? And uh, he said, well, uh, I'm sure God understands. He does not want me to live unhappily for the rest of my life. He certainly wouldn't want me to be miserable. I think he approves of this, of this divorce and remarriage. And I said, well, uh, actually, I, I just uh, received a word from God uh, this past week. And uh, he has another, another way of looking at this situation. He said, oh, I uh, laughed. He said, are you a prophet? And I said, no, I'm not a prophet, but I know one. And then I took out my Bible and I read this section from Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, and this, uh, this revelation from God, from God about the nature of marriage. And just an amazing, amazing text of Scripture. Uh, Malachi is a 5th century book written just about the middle of the 5th century B.C. This was Greece's heyday. This was the period of, of Plato and Aristotle, Socrates. The eyes of the world were on Greece. But God's eyes was on little Judah, which is what you would expect from God. He's always for the underdog, for the little person. And, and he was concerned about what was happening in, in the little country, what we call Israel today, the country of Palestine. He was concerned about what was happening with Judah. The Judeans had just come back from exile. They rebuilt the temple. had begun to rebuild the walls of the city and to establish themselves again in the land. They reestablished worship in the temple. Then they got preoccupied with more mundane things, making enough money to keep the wolf away from the door, and they began to forget God. And they drifted away spiritually. And uh, God raised up this prophet, the one we call Malachi, to woo and to win his, his people back. Now, actually, Malachi is not a name. It's more likely a title. The, the word Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger. And uh, that title occurs in a number of places in the book. You'll notice it in one one and various other places. It refers to uh, the Levites who were called of God to be his messenger. It's even used of our Lord Jesus later when it describes his coming. The messenger of the covenant will come. Say, some will say that's John the Baptist. For myself, I think that's Jesus. 
But originally it referred to the prophet who, who wrote this book. We don't know who wrote it. One of the early Jewish sources says Ezra, and that's about as good a guess as any, because this book is written during the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you want to place it historically, it, it belongs right between the historical Old Testament books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. Now, the, the book has uh, it's a series of oracles or prophecies. Uh, the word means burden in Hebrew. It's an indication of the of the weight of this uh, of these uh, these messages, or perhaps an indication of the attitude of the heart of the prophet. He was really burdened with this message. He he had to get it across because six of these burdens. The first is a declaration of the love of God, chapter 1, verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord. I love you. That's a great thing to know when you've made a mess out of your life, when you're down and out, when you've done things that you know are wrong and sinful, and you look back on them and you wonder if anybody loves you, if anybody really cares about you, it's good to know that God loves you. His love is unconditional and eternal. Man and I have been having a good time going through the little letter of 1 John in our Wednesday morning Bible study, and I pointed out last week in 1 John 3, uh, where John says, What manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God? That the expression, what manner of, literally is from what country? And the idea is, what country does God come from to love us like this? This, this love is foreign. We don't... We don't see it in our homes. We don't see it in our nation. We, it's, it's utterly foreign to us that someone would cling to us and care for us and care about us and love us even though we've, we've trashed our lives. And that's, that's, what, that's what the messenger wanted his people to know. It's what God wants us to know. I love you, says the Lord. And then the next oracle begins with verse 6, and it runs right down to the section we're going to talk about uh, this morning, continues through 2.9. It's essentially an indictment of the clergy, of the priests of that day. He says some interesting things about the priests. He says, you have not taken the word of God seriously. You, you take blemished animals and you sacrifice those contrary to the law. He says, try that with your governor. Try that on April the 15th. Uh, send Uncle Sam a bag of used tea bags. See how he likes that. It's that sort of thing that he's describing. You, you, you're not taking the word of God seriously. You're not taking your ministry seriously. And as a cause and effect relationship, people are not taking you seriously. Now, you can read through the oracle yourself. Basically, that's what, that's what he's saying. They, they, they don't even listen to you anymore. He said, a priest is supposed to have in, uh, wisdom, and he's supposed to impart instruction. He's imp- uh, impart that wisdom to those who come for instruction. But nobody even asks anymore. Sad to say, that, that's what has happened to the clergy here in, in the West. No, no one takes us seriously anymore. You know, we're like uh, uh, British monarchs. You know, We're just sort of there because traditionally we've been there, and we show up at state functions. They, they ask us to pray at... Uh, at city council meetings, but no one ever seriously considers us as counselors. I mean, shame on us. We're a bunch of rascals. It's our own fault. We've done it to ourselves because we don't have a prophetic voice anymore. We don't speak God's word. We speak a lot of nonsense, and no one pays any attention to us. It's what Jesus describes as salt losing its savor. 
When salt loses its saltiness, when it no longer preserves, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled under trampled underfoot. And that's precisely what happened. What's happened to the clergy today? And that's precisely why we are having so many problems in our in our culture, in our society, in our homes, and and in the community. No one knows what's right anymore. Is gay good? Who knows? Is premarital sex all right? Who knows? No one knows. No one's asking. They're asking these, these, these questions, but no one is coming to the, the priest and the prophet, the clergy, to find out because we've neutralized ourselves. It's our own fault. It's the sort of thing that Ezra does. He just, he just takes us head on. And he says, the first result of, of your, your lack of prophetic ministry is that, that society is beginning to deteriorate and is showing up in in your homes. And that's the third burden on Malachi's heart, beginning with with verse uh, 7. I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 2. There there are two problems. There's a problem of marriage and there's a problem of divorce. He says you're marrying the wrong kind of people and you're engaging in, in unlawful divorce. Verse 10, have we, that is we Jews, not all one father? Some commentators would say that he's referring to Father Abraham. Others would say our Father God. I I would say the latter because that's the way he begins begins this prophecy in chapter 1. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? Have we not all one father? We're family. He's saying, we, we, we belong to one another. We're all brothers and sisters. Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our father of our fathers by breaking faith, or that is, being unfaithful with, with one another? Judah has, has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated or unsanctified the sanctuary the Lord loves. The sanctuary would be the people of God. It's not the building. The building simply represented the greater sanctuary, which was, which was Israel in that day. The people of God. And today, God's church, God's people, wherever they gather. Judah has unsanctified the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a, of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of, of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. It's probably a reference to the priest, even if he's a priest. And he does this, or he aids and abets those that do. There, there's a problem in the text. We don't know exactly what, what uh, Malachi has in mind. But he's either saying, those of you who do this, or those of you who encourage others to do it, may be cut off. In other words, if someone does this, they probably are not believers. That's the point. Now, the, the, the problem here, simply put, is that unbelievers, uh, that, that Jewish men and women were marrying unbelievers. It's the men that he addresses himself to because that was the larger problem, but it prob- probably both were true. Believing Jews were marrying un- unbelieving uh, non-Jews, something that was prohibited in, in the Old Testament. Now, we need to understand that prohibition. Oh, by the way, this, we know this was happening. If you read Ezra 9, you read the book of Nehemiah, it happened not once, but numerous times during the time this, uh, this prophet was ministering. 
Now, if you go back into the Old Testament to understand the law, the law was not, it didn't so much prohibit intermarriage with other, other nations. There's nothing wrong with cross-cultural marriages. The scripture does not prohibit that act. The, the, the problem is not mixing marriages in that sense. It's mixing commitments. There are outstanding, sterling examples of, of, marriage with, uh, of marriages with, with, with non-Jews that, were in, that are endorsed in the Old Testament. Uriah the Hittite, for example, not a Jew, but he was a much more godly man than David was or Bathsheba, his wife. And Ruth is another instance of a non-Jew who, who is outstanding in, 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 her, in her faith. So the, the issue was not cross-cultural marriages. The issue was marrying an unbeliever. Because historically what happened was that the unbeliever brought his or her idols into the home with, uh, with them. And uh, then they were incorporated into the family worship. And then they were incorporated into the national worship. And then the whole nation fell apart. And they went into captivity. That's what brought on the, the Babylonian captivity. And Solomon, who is, the, is said to be the wisest man in the whole world, is notoriously a fool when it came to women. He married, the same expression, the daughters of a foreign god. He married idolatrous women, probably for political reasons, to make alliances with other nations. These women brought their gods and goddesses into Israel, and they set them up in, you know, with, with the Lord God of Israel, kind of a pantheon of gods. And that's what brought Israel down. And that's why Malachi says, don't do it. It's going to happen again. Don't you, you know, is your memory so short-lived that you can't recall what happened? That's what took you into captivity in the first place. Don't do that sort of thing. It unsanctifies the sanctuary. And, and, and we can also look at the sanctuary in terms of our own personal lives individually because the New Testament does that. It, 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of the body of Christ as a sanctuary. And then just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of the individual believer as a sanctuary. And, and the same holds true individually and for the body of Christ that, that marriage with an unbeliever unsanctifies the sanctuary. It can lead our heart away from God. That's the problem. You have to understand, this is not... Bias, jingoism, national chauvinism. That's not the point. It, it, it's that, and it's not that an unbeliever can't be a wonderful, wonderful person. They can. It's just that the spiritual commitments are different. Let me illustrate it this way. Let, let's envision a counseling session in the 5th century. And uh, Sally uh, uh, Greenberg shows up on Ezra's doorstep looking for counsel. And... Uh, she says, Ezra, I have just met the most wonderful, wonderful man. He, he is so unlike my Jewish brothers. I mean, you know, I don't have to keep slapping his hands off of me. I mean, he really respects me. He treats me like a real person. And he loves me. And I love him. And we want to get married. And Ezra says, uh, uh, Sally, is he a believer? No, but he's real close. He's only about that far away. And we talk about spiritual things all the time. We even pray together sometimes. 
And uh, I think he's very close. It's just a question of time before he becomes a believer. And Ezra says, Sally, you know that's the kind of thing that, that the Lord prohibits. But why? Why? He's such a nice person. You know, frankly, he's so much better than many of, of, of my believing friends. I mean, he, he's thrifty, he's honest, he's hardworking, he has a lot of integrity, he has real ambition, he wants to do, he loves children, he wants to have lots of children, you ought to see the way he, 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 he is around children. He, you know, he's just a wonderful person. And he has all these ambitions, and, and, and you know, he bought, he's bought a little piece of ground down by Joppa, and we're going to retire down there and, and, uh, on, on the Mediterranean, and, and he's really looking out for us as, as a family. And Ezra says, that, Sally, is exactly the problem. Because you belong to God. And that's an eternal relationship. That's not just in the here and now. That lasts forever. You were made to long for him and to live for him and to love him. And the, 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 the primary thing in your life is to pursue after God. And, and, and John here is going to settle for second best. He's going to pursue something else. And as time will go on, what will happen? is that you'll have to choose. You'll either have to choose to go John's way and it will tear your heart away from God, or you will have to choose to go God's way and it will tear your heart away from John. And either way, it's going to hurt terribly. It isn't worth it. It isn't worth it. That's what Paul is talking about when he describes uh, these sorts of covenants as unequal yokes in the Old Testament. The, the law prohibited yoking together two animals that had uneven gates, like a camel or a donkey, because the, the yoke would, uh, would rub both animals. I used that illustration once with a bunch of college students, and one raised his hand and said, uh, does this mean it's all right to date a camel as long as you don't marry one? <clears throat> See, it's, it's a humane consideration. It, it, God loves unbelievers as well as believers, and oh, it just creates so much pain, so much heartache. So much chaos. I know, I know. Because I hear the stories down downstream. Uh, a couple of years ago, I came across a prayer that uh, is called a, a, a wedding day prayer. It goes like this. Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. I guess, too, I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just can't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow, someday. You know how much I've prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I tried not to appear too religious, I know, but that's because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he isn't antagonistic, and I don't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if only he were a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I want to be his wife, so please be with us. And please don't spoil my wedding day. And God probably won't, because he'll let us have what, what, what we insist upon. But all he's trying to do is, is spare us the pain. Now, let me say one thing more. The issue is not merely marrying a believer. 
The issue is marrying someone who has made God first. That's the kind of spouse you want, believe me. And you say, there anybody, I haven't found anybody like that. All right, you're better off single, frankly. Because there are a whole lot of things worse than being single, and one of them is being married to the wrong man. Well, let's go on. It gets too uncomfortable. (laughs) Verse 13. Actually, it gets worse. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings and accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Do you know what that reminded me of when I read it? I I didn't have time to follow this up, but it occurs to me that this is what Peter is talking about when he says to men, live with your wives according to understanding, that is, understanding the way they are, and treat them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. We talked about that statement. They are equal. They are our partner. This is my friend. Uh, created in God's image, just as I. He says, live with them as, as joint heirs of eternal life so that your prayers won't be hindered. Interesting. And that, that's exactly what Malachi says. If we don't do that, we, we, we'll, we'll pray and we'll weep and we'll wail and we ask for things and, and, and nothing will happen. God won't hear us. Is this serious? Um, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you, or has acted, actually, as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made one, though the remnant of the Spirit was his? And why one? Because he was seeking the offspring of God. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Here's the second problem. First is that of uh, unlawful marriage. This is a matter of unlawful divorce. And Malachi Uh, has three appeals that he makes. He says, first of all, remember your wife. And uh, notice the way he describes her. She's described as your partner, um, which which is reminiscent of uh, the idea of helper in Genesis 2, your sidekick, your friend, the one brought in alongside to save you from your loneliness. She is the wife of your youth and the wife of your marriage uh, covenant. A couple of things I think Malachi is trying to do. The first is he's trying to help them to see what a terrible thing they're doing. See, what happened is that they, you know, they were looking at their wives and they were thinking, oh, she's kind of old and she's looking a little worn out. And uh, my goodness, the, the young women down at the office look so much better. Or uh, the young women were looking at their husbands and, you know, he sat around the house all day in a T-shirt, watched TV, and he wasn't much to look at. And then there were these uh, hunks down at the courthouse, and uh, she was thinking maybe they're more attractive. Or they certainly are more attractive, but maybe they would that'd be a better marriage, and they, they were breaking up their marriages. And Malachi says, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a terrible thing to do to the wife of your youth. Think about all you've gone through, all those years of struggle and 
pain. Stood beside the bed of your children, child, when they were ill. and You, you, you made it through the tough times when, when you didn't have much money. And, and very often she had to work so you could go to school. I have a friend who went off to medical school. His wife supported him for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And as soon as he graduated from medical school, he dumped her. This sort of thing goes on all the time. Malachi says, oh, shame on you, shame on you. Think about the fact that this is the wife of your youth. I read an old commentary. Well, actually, it was a quote from an old commentary this past week. Uh, very touching. You know, I love these f- the flowery way of writing that they used to have. This fellow's name is T.V. Moore. Puts it well. He's commenting on this verse. She whom you thus wronged was the companion of those earlier and brighter days when in the bloom of her young beauty she left her father's house and shared your early struggles and rejoiced in your later success who walked arm in arm with you along the pilgrimage of life, cheering you in its trials by her gentle ministry. And now when the bloom of her youth is faded and the friends of her youth have gone, When father and mother whom she left for you are in the grave, then you cruelly cast her off as a worn-out, worthless thing and insult her holiest affections by putting an idolater and a heathen in her place. You know, we have ways of justifying these terrible things we do, but Malachi won't let us. I think there's something else that Malachi is trying to do. He's trying to to regenerate that, that first love that we had for one another. Do you remember what that was like? I've lost track of the men that have talked to me about getting divorces, and they always say the same thing. I don't love her anymore, and as a matter of fact, I never did. How many times have you heard that? I have a stock answer to that, whether I say it out loud or not. You know, I, 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 I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Here in the West, nobody gets married because they have to necessarily. Uh, you know, we don't contract marriages. There are a few shotgun marriages around, but by and large, we get married because we like each other, because we love each other, because we think we're going to live together for life. Nobody gets married, you know, with the idea that I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. I really want to be miserable, so I'm going to marry someone I can't stand. But I've heard people say that. I never did like her. I said, oh, come on now. What did you get married for? No, no, that's a cop-out. That's all that is. That's an ungodly cop-out. Sure you did. Love's grown cold. That's all. And I think what Malachi is doing is trying to get us to see that that love can be regenerated, that God can do anything, even when your heart's cold and you've been hurt over the years. He can warm your heart toward that person. There's an interesting verse. It's a bit of misuse of this verse, but forgive me if you will. I, I, I used it this last week. A fellow came to me and said, my wife doesn't love me anymore, and, and I can't make her love me. And I said, that's right, you can't. There's nothing we can do to make someone else love us, but God can, can recreate love in her heart. And I had him turn to Jeremiah 31, where God says, I'm going to do a new thing in Israel, a woman will put her arms around a man. And he's speaking uh, metaphorically of, of Judah throwing her arms around God. 
she'd been unfaithful, but she was going to turn around. She was going to love him again. And the interesting, it's interesting the way he puts it. He says, God will create. There's that word bara that we talked about in, in Genesis, something only God can do. He will create love in that person's heart. And I, and I applied that to his situation. I said, God can recreate love in her. It used to be there. It may be, it may be dead. It may seem dead, but it's, you know, it's, it's dormant. It can be recreated. God can make something out of nothing. He did it once before. And he can do it again. I think that's what Malachi is doing. He's oh, just just remember the wife of your youth. That, by the way, is a phrase that's used over and over again. It'll turn up again in Proverbs five. You'll see it. It's a good term to remember. That woman sitting next to you, most likely, <laughs> is the wife of your youth, or the husband of your youth. Hey, he may not look like much these days. I mean, he's kind of old, and worn out, but. That's the husband of your youth. That's the wife of your youth. You need to keep that in mind. The second thing that, that God does is uh, remind them of uh, their wedding day. It's interesting. He says, the God has acted as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage vows... You understand what God is saying? When you got married, he was there. So, oh, no, he wasn't. It was just the justice of the peace and a uh, county clerk that acted as a witness. There wasn't anybody else there. Yes, there was. God was there. He was looking over your shoulder. He heard what you said. When, when the justice or the preacher said, uh, do you take this woman to love and to cherish through better or worse, through rich or poor, through sickness or health? What would you say? I said, I do. Did you mean it? You bet. All right, then you hang in there to the end. Because God heard it. He's there. So I heard what you said. And he holds us to it. Marriage is more than a social contract, you see. It, it's, a, it's a contract between a man and a woman with God as the witness to that contract. Now, that ought to put, you know, that, that puts the brakes on when you start thinking about, about bailing out. I, I can't. I promised, and God heard me, and he holds me accountable. That's the second thing he does. He evokes his memories of our wedding, uh, of our wife, uh, the way things used to be, our husband, our spouse. He, he evokes memories of our wedding day. And then he, he wants, wants us to remember the original plan, verse 15. Has not the Lord made... Now, I'm going to read my translation, and then I'm going to read the Ropricus Absurdus translation. You can take your pick. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. That's what the NIV says. Uh, other translations put it another way. It's a very difficult verse to translate. It goes something like this, if you just read it literally off, off the page. Made one. And why one? He had the residue of the spirit. One, because he was seeking the offspring of God. Now this is what I think he's saying. Now, you know, let, let me expand on this translation a little bit. How many wives did God create for Adam? One. 
Why one? Was he short of spirits? Did he run out of power? No. He could have created a whole harem for Adam. Or he could have created a spare in case the first one didn't work out. <laughs> just kind of keep her around, you know. Stay in the trees until the time comes. And then, hey, Eve, you're not working out. I got, I got, I got an alternative here. No. He made one wife for Adam because that's all he needed. And, I, and what he's saying is that God intends for one man and one woman to live together for life. That's the plan. And it's absolutely contrary to our culture. You know, we're going to be counter we're going to be counterculture if we are men and women of the word. People in your office are saying, uh, you know, pick up the key, Lee. Go out the back, Jack. I mean, you know, this cut out. If it doesn't work, find another. The world's full of them. God says, no, there's just one. And that's the wife of your youth. That's the one you promised to live with for life, for better or worse. You say, well, it's a, you know, well, he or she is a whole lot worse than I took her for. It's all right. That's your wife. That's your husband. For life. But I'm, you know, it means suffering. So what? Our Lord knows suffering. It's what he came to do. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. One man, one woman together for life. Jesus says, what God, this, 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 this is not, these are not my words. This comes from the lips of our sovereign Lord. What God has joined together, let no one separate. See, that's why God hates divorce. That's why he hates it. It's what he says. And it's what I finally said to my friend. I just read verse 16. I said, we don't have, you know, it's no mystery what God thinks about divorce. He says, I hate it. I hate it. I don't care what society says. God hates it. Now, I want you to notice he does not say, I hate divorcees. That's a very important distinction to make. He does not hate divorcees. But he hates the very thought of divorce because it is so painful. It is so hurtful. It is so destructive. I have men and women say, oh, it's not going to hurt the kids. They get over with it. That is errant nonsense. It does hurt. It hurts them terribly and sometimes for life. And it does hurt men and it does hurt women. It's like ripping an arm off. It hurts, and some people never heal. And that's why God says, I hate it. I just hate it. And we ought to hate it too. And, and, and if we do, we'll, we'll do what, what God says. He says, guard yourself in your spirit. Guard yourself in your spirit, and, and don't be unfaithful with the wife of your youth. That's the bottom line. Guard your spirit. Marriages are made in heaven, but they're maintained in the heart. You understand that? They, they, they last because we determine in our hearts that come better or worse, come hell or high water, I am not going to leave this person, no matter what it costs me. Because that's what God has called us to. Now, we're, we're going to talk later about what do you do if your husband is battering you? You don't have to put up with that. 
We're going to deal with all of those issues. If you're being verbally abused, no, you don't have to put up with that. There are ways to handle those situations. But what Malachi calls us to, what Moses called us to, what our Lord called to do, called us to was this commitment to stick together, to cleave to one another for life, no matter what it costs us, until death separates us. So it starts here, in the heart. Guard your spirit, he says, and don't be unfaithful to your spouse. Let's pray. Let's stand together, can't we? Let's pray. I know that uh, many of you have gone through divorces in the past few months or years. And uh, you look back on, uh, on that, uh, that uh, action and, and, and a, a passage like this hits you with such force and it produces so much guilt. I want you to understand that God forgives. He forgives and he restores. If you were divorced on anything other than and biblical grounds, it's sin, and it needs to be faced and confessed as sin. But he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or perhaps you've been unfaithful to your mate this last year. Again, he forgives. If we truly repent, he does not condone a lifestyle of unfaithfulness. That's one of the things that breaks the marriage relationship. It's one of the bases, it sees, on which... Uh, we can divorce and be remarried. We'll talk about that later, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to be divorced. There can be repentance and restoration of, of that marriage. God will see to it. And you can begin to love that person with a pure love. Will you, do, will you ask the Lord to forgive you of the attitudes, the the motives, the beliefs that have, that have ruined your marriage in the past. And if possible, ask for a restoration of that relationship. Perhaps you can't go back. But perhaps you can. And if you can, he can restore. Tell him at least that you're willing or if you can't do that, that you're willing to be made willing. Lord, uh, these words strike us with such force, all of us. We thank you for these reminders. Not altogether gentle reminders. Hard stuff to handle. But nevertheless, truth. Help us to come to terms with it. Keep us from, from rejecting it out of hand. Keep our hearts soft. Help us to respond to the word and to let it do its work, produce its, its, its fruit, its results in our life. Lord, heal our marriages. Help us to recommit ourselves to one another. Help us to make that covenant firm and final. And never again contemplate, contemplate the the idea of divorce simply because 
it would, it's just too hard the way we're going. Lord, we know that we're called to live a life of, of hardship. It's the life that you've called us to. It's the life that you lived. And, and it may entail injustice. It may, it may be very, very difficult. But we thank you that you sustain and you provide. You enrich our lives. You give us just what we need a day at a time to face the circumstances we have to face in our homes. We thank you for your, your heart of love for us despite our failure. We thank you in Jesus' name.